0: From Irmo to Istanbul, from Taipei to Tunisia, we tell the stories of the people who make the world of international disputes turn. We give glimpses into their lives and give insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry from around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello, and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, it is great to have you back, and thank you so much for tuning in. We have a great episode for you, and we want to jump right into it. But before we do that do take a second to leave a five-star review and any comments that you may have on your podcasting platform of choice. Alternatively, feel free to share the show with a friend or colleague. We are trying to pass 30,000 downloads on our primary podcasting platform by the end of the summer, so we would appreciate you helping us get the word out about the show. All right, let's set up this week's episode. Many of you may know that T.O.T. was inspired by the tons of podcasts that I'd love to listen to and follow. Two of my favorites and who I secretly try and channel every episode are the China Africa podcast with Kobus Van Stanton and Eric Olander and Masters in Business with Barry Rithels, which, as a side note, are both great podcasts that you should absolutely check out when you have the time. On the latter show, Masters in Business, there is this ad they used to run for the American Arbitration Association or AAA. And it always got me curious, one, about how an arbitral institution produced such an epic sounding commercial, but also to get to know some of the folks behind the scenes there. As one of the leading arbitral institutions in the world and especially the United States, chances are you have an agreement subject to a AAA provision somewhere in your life. The AAA's international arm is called the ICDR or the International Center for Dispute Resolution. And it's headquartered in New York City. Luis Martinez has been there, that is the ICDR, since the very beginning, going all the way back to 1996, and he was the first attorney hired by the ICDR and currently serves as the organization's vice president. He also oversees the business development in the United States from Maine to Florida, Central and South America, the Caribbean, European Union, and the United Kingdom. Lewis and I also had a chance to catch up while the ICBR and the Vienna International Arbitration Center, or VIAC, were renewing their cooperation agreement back during this mood. Lewis is a fascinating individual who has an equally fascinating career, so you're really going to enjoy this episode, so I would encourage you to sit back, grab a notepad, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Lewis Martinez, and we'll see you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, we are stepping and zooming right along through season five of the show. Thank you for being with us so far, and we're keeping that train rolling right along. We've got a very special guest with us today who you've heard me just described in the opening show notes a few moments ago, and speaking of someone that is actually also going to be taking my mantle when I leave the ABA in just a few short months. I'm speaking, of course, of Mr.
1: Luis Martinez. Luis, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's a real pleasure to be here with you.
0: Great, thanks for being here. And uh, Luis, you know, we gave you an introduction here just a few moments ago, sort of off screen, but we want to get introduce you to the listeners that are maybe meeting you for the first time. Can you, can you tell us the, question, the answer to the question I'd like to start with all of my guests? Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know?
1: Well, Chris, thanks. Uh, My name is Luis Martinez. I am a vice president with the International Center for Dispute Resolution. Now, that's the international division of the American Arbitration Association. I've been fortunate to be with the ICDR since it was created in 1996. Uh, Some of my daily responsibilities include Case administration, overseeing cases out of a Miami office with my director, colleague, And the other component is actual business development, trying to promote the use of ICDR services in my assigned regions, which are the East Coast of the United States. I do South and Central America, the EU and the UK and I've been doing this for quite some time and enjoying it tremendously. I'm a dual citizen of the United States and Spain. I'm an attorney admitted to practice in New York and New Jersey, and have been fortunate to watch the real global expansion of international arbitration and mediation over these many years.
0: Wow, that was like a really well-prepared sort of introduction. You did that very well, Lewis. Um, let's take a step back uh, before we get into uh, to where you're currently sitting and been sitting for a while um, on this road to becoming a lawyer did you know you always wanted to be an attorney
1: it's a great question uh, it's something that i always did have a passion for but it wasn't really until later in life i first started out working as an airline sales representative uh, working for iberia airlines and argentina airlines and I guess somewhere along the midlife, I won't call it a crisis, but it was an interesting part of my life. I decided it's time to really fulfill the goal of trying to be an attorney. So mm-hmm. I went to St. John's School of Law. Uh, I received my law degree, uh, passed the bar in New York and New Jersey and started working.
0: Wow. Okay. So interesting. So you worked in the airline industry first and then um, eventually decided to go to law school. Now, from there, and this is the part where I'm always fascinated to figure to hear how people have made the, the sort of pivot or found their way into international law, and especially international
1: arbitration. How did that happen? What's the story there? So I was with a law firm in New Jersey, and it was interesting enough, but I had read about this position that the American Arbitration Association was creating, uh, this international center, which would totally focus on all of the AAAs, international initiatives. Uh, It was a new uh, body, a new division, if you will. You know, prior to that, and the AAA established in 1926, as early as 1927, it did have a foreign division, but all its international work was done throughout its 36 offices. Well, in 96, they said, you know what, it's time to focus, create a specialized division, specialized rule, specialized administrators, and uh, I applied and was fortunate to be hired and haven't looked back since.
0: Wow, I talk about right place, right time, huh? Sure was. <laughs> well, that's that's interesting. So then you've been that takes us up to to the 90s. And so I wonder um, in your experience, I guess, being with the organization, um, what are some of the ways that I guess that you've seen uh, some of the evolutional evolutionary things that you've seen or noticed In the practice of international arbitration anything that sticks sticks with you or jumps out of mind
1: well it is quite a long run and it um has really evolved over time i mean some of the things you can uh, i assume imagine is the advances in technology Uh, when i started we had these huge paper files in fact um i remember one of the earliest cases i had uh, I was visited by uh, Jan Paulson, Professor Martin Hunter and Henry Alvarez in our small little office that was just opened. and uh, they were the arbitrators on a case I was administering, and they had some questions. and you have to pull out binder after binder, look for the correspondence, look for all the colored tabs. And uh, we did have an electronic system at that point. It was called the AS400. Uh, it was it was cool at the time, but nothing compared to what we have today. So today, the platforms that we use, uh, and you can imagine, the uh, AAA does about 450,000 cases a year. So it's really an advanced system to handle that kind of volume. We have a platform for us, the administrators, a platform for the parties to access the case, and that links to the platform for the arbitrators. So that really is a game changer. But Some of the other major changes over the years, I mean, the impact of soft law. I remember, for example, when the IBA first introduced its guidelines for conflict of interest, I was working with our general counsel at the time, Mr. Hellering, who has since passed. And I said to him, I'm doing a conference, Uh, Mr. Hellering. Shall I include these new guidelines? And he actually said, you know, I'd rather you don't, because what's happening here is that these guidelines are going to be uh, more and more frequently used. Uh, They're going to create more problems with disclosures and issues that I think in the long run will impact international arbitration in a negative way. And um, he may have been right in that the way soft law has been impacting international arbitration, not always in a positive way. But, you know, I have seen the harmonization of the civil law and common law. Um, I've seen modern sets of rules today. For example, we revised our rules. Uh, We were the first ones to introduce emergency arbitrators. Uh, We have expedited rules, the transparency in the process. And lastly, I think one of the things that I've really been impressed with over time And again, I don't know if it's a positive or a negative, but it's the competition we're seeing, the competition among seats uh, to try to attract international arbitration business, regional centers, uh, uh, cities being promoted uh, to the exclusion of others, while those that are busy promoting their services you could argue have made those cities better venues for international arbitration i don't know if the competition in the long run is a positive uh we'll have to see
0: well right i mean uh lots of things to threads to pull on through those answers uh lewis the last thing that you said really sticks with me because i wonder if especially in the wake of the pandemic if the city where you're resolving some of these disputes matters quite as much. I mean, I know um, some might say that you see sort of this big shift to things being completely re- remote or online. So um, have you seen that a trend that way, one way or another?
1: Well, definitely the pandemic has presented us with a number of opportunities, uh, one of which, of course, is what you mentioned in that virtual hearings were available before, Chris. and sure. But the parties didn't use them. They didn't include them. They still flew off with their international arbitration teams and tacked uh, to these venues, and the costs were, of course, impacted. Now that they were forced to operate virtually, they could see how it does work. And certainly, I think the in-house clients are asking for it, but having said that, uh, they are returning to in-person hearings, especially in the large cases. Uh, International arbitrators and counsel, at least, feel that they have a much better sense of how their case is being received by the tribunal when they are in the room. They can feel the energy of the arbitrators, they can see the body language, they can see opposing counsel. So, what we are seeing is a return to in person, but uh, we are now certainly always having a virtual component, which in house. counsel is using to observe their attorneys, observe the case using as training tools. They're much more present in the cases uh, that uh, they are part of the dispute process in.
0: I think that's probably right. I think for, you know, the main, the primary hearing in a case, certainly folks really want to be in person for those. Um, I think for the, you know, the case management conference, perhaps some of the other hearings that might lead up to that, I am seeing, at least in my own practice, uh, a lot more comfortable um, nature from a client side of uh, doing some of those things remote, and that not being such a taboo thing and saying, oh, you're not going to be in the same room.
1: <laughs> Have you gotten to the point where sometimes you may insist that we try to do this remotely to your yeah. external counsel?
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, that we're not shy about saying that and asking, is it really pre- you know, pertinent that we be in the same room to do this? and you know, is it possible if we must have an in-person meet, um, meeting before the primary hearing, can we couple this up with some other things that we can do all at once so that it doesn't have to be a situation where you're flying multiple people? Um, and that's not only the cost. I mean, the cost is certainly important um, for, for, from a company standpoint, but also uh, from the environmental impact as well. Um, but that, that's interesting. That, that, that's really uh, sort of uh, an interesting point to pull up on. I, I wonder then, and this is um, another thing that I'm always curious to hear. Um so you've seen lots of changes over the past 30 years or so um in your time um, and we'll see probably many more. If you had a magic wand if you could change one thing about the practice international arbitration um, and how the business operates, how it flows, uh, anything that comes to mind by what you would ch- um, change or fix
1: That's a real interesting question and um, I, I do think about this. Uh, You know, at the end of each case, we have the standard practice of sending out the client survey forms. We ask the client to rate us, rate the administrator, rate the process, rate the arbitrators. Would they use us again? And it's great feedback, even for those parties that uh, were not successful. Uh, We do take all this information and, and think about it. The Being continues to be the greatest pain point, if you will, is the time and costs. And one of the things that I really would like to see is that I don't think the users yet fully grasp the options available to them in international arbitration. How many times do I see an arbitration provision that references the rules and then Something may happen during the process. Uh, for example, one side doesn't pay. The paying party then has to advance the cost for the non-paying party. Uh, but they, don't, they didn't read the rules. They, they're surprised by this. And, of course, since their expectations were not the proper ones to begin with, you really can't meet them. Uh, you, you go along the process and explain to them as it takes place. You know, and if you talk about a magic wand, I guess I would pick one thing. We haven't seen like a a major movie, if you will, or a TV show that really focuses on an international arbitration, at least to my knowledge. Uh, Something like Law and Order or, uh, I don't know, A Few Good Men or one of those, where people get to see how international arbitration plays out. And uh, that would increase their knowledge of the tools of the process that people would gain interest in it. So I guess that that would be it. So much of what we do because of confidentiality, because it's not really known. People out there just don't eat and breathe this stuff as you and I do. And uh, they just don't know what's going on behind the curtains. And that to me is something that I strive to try to change and get more information, more light on the process.
0: I think that that's a, that's really interesting and it's a novel um, point. I think a lot of people, when they hear the word arbitration, they might think it's mediation. <laughs> um, yep. I think uh, th- there's there's not really a good idea of what's invoked in people's mind when they hear the term arbitration, let alone international arbitration. Um, so I, I think that's that's really interesting. I, I would um, I'd be in for a Netflix series or you know a Hulu special on you know international arbitration. Question though, Louis, uh, who's going to play you in the movie?
1: uh well i don't know lorenzo Lamas. maybe i thought he was always a good actor but i'm dating myself but uh you know i just i'm happy that at least by now my children know what i do for a living so that was uh the first test i had to try to explain to them how this is different
0: yeah yeah um no and i think that, that that's a great point um and that's it's really i like that answer a lot because it's not just uh they not necessarily dealing with the direct functionality of the system, but it deals with how it's perceived and how it's um, sort of understood in the greater uh, population. And uh, the last thing that I'd say about it is that, I, I really like that idea too, because I remember there was a few years ago, this really, uh, I won't say the publication, that I believe that it was, but a national US publication that sort of endeavored to describe investor state arbitration, international arbitration more broadly, and talked about smoky backfilled rooms and sort of shady dealings, and Um, really made it seem a lot more, well, perhaps not dramatic, but a lot more um, clandestine than I think it really is. Um, And I think it was uh, with a negative connotation. I think that was really unfair um, that that's never really been clarified. And like you said, uh, illustrated for the popular lexicon. Going from there, and I think one thing that kind of comes out of one of the answers that you just gave is When you talk about taking control of your arbitration, all the options that are in the the AAA rules, um, what are some ways that you think parties can better educate themselves or get more familiar with uh, not only the arbitration process in the general sense, but perhaps with the ICDR AAA practices?
1: You know, there there are a number of things parties can do, and and then it gets back to the fact that I had just mentioned the lack of familiarity with the rules and the options, and perhaps not fully gauging that when you have arbitration that's administered by an institution that institution is a resource for both parties obviously we are independent we have no interest in the actual results of who prevails and who doesn't you know our interest is to protect the integrity of the arbitration process due process if you will make sure the parties are treated fairly and that our rules are applied in a consistent manner Uh, and that we fulfill our administrative mandate to try to resolve the dispute uh, that the parties uh, put in our hands when they drafted that arbitration agreement. But, you know, as I go through these cases, I see the situation arise where they don't fully explore. If if time is clearly an issue and costs, there are quite a few options you can do. I mean, some of the things, Chris, obviously, you know, we've discussed the, the idea of you opt for a sole arbitrator instead of a tripartite panel. That That's a no-brainer. Uh, yes, there is the debate whether you have a better decision-making process when you have three arbitrators over a sole, but you can't argue that it's not a more economical to proceed before a sole arbitrator. We already mentioned the idea of do you need these hearings in person? Which hearings the hearings on the merits, the preparatory hearings uh, you have the virtual option which is only going to continue to get better so factor that in. you know we have cases that are done on documents only, really time and costs are an issue. No greater way to save money than to waive and forego hearings at all and do it all on on the documents. Um, information exchange or the discovery issue that in international arbitration we don't really use the word discovery, we use exchange of information, but we have done our darndest to make sure that our rules reflect international practice. None of these fishing expeditions, you request documents that uh, are narrowly tailored requests for documents you believe to exist, and you consider economy when you're exchanging these documents And we ask our arbitrators to try to make sure that these goals are achieved because that's part of the ICDR system. Uh, You can really, the process is so flexible. You can decide, for example, options that I've seen. Uh, For example, we have these cases, we administer tax treaty arbitrations where there are disputes between countries regarding what taxes the taxpayer owes to which country and what amount. These are done based on the uh, baseball arbitration format, where each country submits a draft of the award uh, with uh, the facts and the uh, conclusions of law. And the arbitrators can either pick one or the other country's submission. They're not allowed to make any changes. I submit to you that's a cost-saving way to approach it. You don't have the time for the deliberations and the drafting of the award, and those fees are not incurred by those arbitrators. We have cases where the users decide to cap the compensation rates for the arbitrators. Uh, we have cases that we do for sovereigns and infrastructures in certain countries where they have said this is the ceiling for compensation for any arbitrators that are appointed to that case. So, of course, we have to tell the arbitrators, if you wish to be appointed, you have to agree that this is as far as the compensation goes. And and lastly, and I mean, the list is not exclusive uh, or exhaustive. Uh, We have the streamlined panel option where you have a tripartite panel. We get them all duly appointed. They clear conflicts. And then for the first procedural part of the case, we only work with the presiding arbitrators. The two-wing arbitrators are not actively participating at these preparatory stages. They come back on board as we get close to the hearings. And uh, lastly, mediation, which is under our rules now an obligatory step, meaning that the mediation will, in fact, take place unless the parties opt out. Uh, We've seen a spike in our international mediation cases. And I don't have to tell you that uh, the time and money you save if you reach a settlement uh, through the mediation and not meeting the eventual Arbitration is huge and is a win-win for everyone concerned.
0: Well, that's right. No, I mean, and I think that, that, well, thanks for walking through uh, those different options. You know, I wonder, um, with it being obligatory, have you seen a lot of parties opt out or have most parties at least said we're willing to give it the old college tribe going to mediation?
1: I've seen parties opt out, Chris, but I don't have empirical data as to uh, statistical amounts of how many has, have opted out. But I do see parties now also participating in, I, I, I would say, more than we did before. Yeah. And, yeah, and right. remember, I mean. the, parties, the, the parties used to say, uh, I'm worried about delaying the arbitration. We've already had some sort of negotiations, but we do it concurrently. So sure. as the case is started, we'll get the mediation up and running while we're getting the arbitrators appointed uh, through the list or party appointed method.
0: Right. So there is the feeling that you're not being delayed, that things are both going on. It's just in two parallel tracks.
1: Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Well, sorry.
0: No, no. I was going to say, just keeps the parties continuing to talk, which is generally a good thing.
1: That's correct. And, um, um, but you know,
0: we were talking about, um, stats and data just a moment ago, and, um, that, that triggered something, uh, a question I wanted to ask you know, one of the things that I think people that are familiar with working with a lot of these different institutions and, and comparing, um, sometimes they might feel like they are comparing apples and oranges, um, to the extent that there's not always uniform definitions for different topics, or different things as it goes between institutions. And one of the examples I was thinking of is, uh, the definition of international. So the ICDR, um, as I think you mentioned at the top and I will just reiterate here, is the international branch or arm of the AAA. And so I guess it comes to the pragmatic question might come to a layperson, what what does that what does that mean when someone says it's an international case? How does the ICDR see that?
1: Sure, and actually you can find it in the introduction to our international rules, which is available on our website icdr.org. Excuse the shameless plug. <laughs> and um, we quote the Uncentral Model Law on International Arbitration on what is deemed international, places of business in different countries, or a place where a substantial part of the obligations of the relationship is to be performed, is situated outside the country of any party. Uh, the place where the subject matter of the dispute is most closely connected, is situated outside the country of any party. And the place of arbitration is situated in another country or one party with more than one place of business, including a parent or, and or its subsidiary, is situated outside the country of any party. So there's about six different criteria there, and, and uh, they are listed there following the UNCITRAL model law's definition. Well, very
0: well. And, you know, not picking on any particular arbitral institution, but noting that, you know, there might be other institutions that exist out there that don't have that exact same definition um and i get well they, they would be deferring from uh, the central model law themselves in doing so uh, any thoughts on on creating that greater unity or do you think there's any value to institutions having um a shared definition of things like internet of a definition like international or maybe even other common terms
1: that's a good question uh i do think data Is obviously so important now and everyone is striving for greater data from uh, what we're seeing in terms of the caseloads the process and again it goes to the point that I said uh, I do think it's important to shed more light on the process so I think to the extent you could have some sort of uniform definition shared by many of the arbitral institutions I think that would be helpful Uh, I think there should be perhaps standards of reporting caseloads and trends. Some institutions, for example, group their domestic and international statistics together, and it's sometimes hard to distinguish. So uh, I think that's a good suggestion. And, you know, institutions in general, uh, there are many around the world. Uh, Obviously, they're not all the same and they may have different capabilities or regional focus or structure, but to the extent they can work together to improve uh, how international arbitration and mediation is perceived, I think that's a good idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, from a user's perspective, client's perspective, um, it helps you like, you know, you can imagine you're standing in the the proverbial market and you're looking at two things in your hand and say, well, is this an apple? Well, it's kind of an apple. You know, right. uh, you want to be able to try and make those things as light as you can. Um, I, I will share, <laughs>
1: though. I, I will share that we do have a network of cooperative agreements that is very mm. important to us. That has been in place for many years, even before the ICDR was formed. Uh, we have 87 cooperative agreements in 54 different countries, and I do use them on a regular basis on programming on educational initiatives. For example, right now I'm working on a conference that I'll do jointly with the Chamber of Commerce in Bogota. And I'm working on another set of conferences for 2024 with the AmCham in Sao Paulo. And we work quite nicely together. We do all believe in promoting international ADR. uh, And these educational joint initiatives, I think, are very helpful to that end.
0: No, I think that's absolutely right. And um, for those that are faithful listeners to the show, you'll recognize one of our sound bites from uh, the re-signing of one of those, I think, um, mutual understanding uh, agreements with the Viac um, back in uh, April during the Vismut moot, um, which is the Vienna institution. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've seen it firsthand. And I mean, I think I would tend to agree that that certainly increases the likelihood and the chances of people working together and doing so. Um, before we leave the ICDR um, and its sort of reputation and, and how it likes to work, let's, let's stay with one final question I have for you on this point, uh, Louis, and it is, when you think about the ICDR, and again, we won't name any other institutions, we'll just say in the general, how does the ICDR, what, what is the ICDR's competitive advantage in your mind, when you think about it? Thanks,
1: Chris. That That is a very good question, and it's important to us to be clear on at least how we view ourselves and hopefully from the feedback we receive from our users what we hear from them I think there's a a few factors that need to be considered and you know this is important when even for the user drafting arbitration clauses you do want institutions that have longevity that have established track records that you'll know will be there when your dispute may arise. And the fact that we are approaching in 2026 our 100th anniversary, uh, the fact that we have and administer over 450,000 cases a year, we have over 600 employees, we have offices throughout the United States and in Singapore, uh, all that infrastructure and support that the American arbitration has is what we enjoy in the international division. So the infrastructure, technology, and support is is clearly one of our strengths. The other is our panel of international uh, diverse arbitrators and mediators. One of our key messaging points is that we promote that global expertise matters. These arbitrators, these men and women, from various fields, and the criteria is also on our website. In fact, some of our panels are public. Uh, we have um, an energy arbitration panel, uh, an aerospace panel. You can view some of the panels. And they have the subject matter expertise when they apply. We look for a minimum of 15 years of experience in that particular sector. Uh, they are vetted. We have an external advisors each year who we ask them to give us their opinion on whether this is the type of person they would like to see in a particular list for that sector. Do you know this person? What do you think about their qualifications, education, work experience? And then we take that feedback and we look at our caseload needs. And that's how we make decisions as to who is going to be added to the international panel. And once added, We have a mandatory full day training requirement that everyone has to go through. It's a mock licensing dispute. Uh, We have two of our more experienced facilitators lead the course with an institutional representative. And we spend the whole day looking at this case, which has some troubling vignettes and issues that may arise, uh, with challenges, with parties not participating, you name it, it's part of the program. And we spend the day looking at, well, what is the ICDR policy on this? What are their rules? Uh, They exchange war stories, and the experienced facilitators give them some idea on how best to handle it and how to work with the administrator, because we think the panel and the institution working together gives you the predictability that you're looking for when you draft an ICDR clause. Um, I think a couple of the last two points that are really our strengths I'm very happy with the last version of our international rules. Uh, We had advisory committees work on this for two years. We looked at our experience from the 2014 version, what the rules needed uh, according to what we're seeing in the field and uh, the cases that we administer. And um, what we're seeing since they were in effect 2021 is a really good reception and that they're working quite well. And then lastly, I think one of our our strengths is the, is the flexibility of process. The idea that uh, we don't really have an indispensable element that you must go through uh, for an ICDR-administered case. You can decide what process, what steps you'd like to take, what you'd like to keep, what you draft out. Really, the only thing we require is that Any process, any clause comes to us doesn't provide for one party having a clear advantage over the other or that due process is not protected. Uh, Those we would not administer. But aside from that, you as the user, knowing the types of disputes that you may be facing, you can work your ICDR and clause to what makes the most sense for you. And we, of course, will administer that clause to the letter.
0: Well, well, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, again, another complete answer, um, and I think well, you've given some good resources for folks to look up if they're interested, either on the website and in the rules themselves. Um, one of the things that you talked about um, as part of that answer was uh, the strength uh, by way of diversity that uh, the ICDR tries to reflect through its various initiatives. One of the initiatives that I've been aware of for a number of years, and I, I know that a, a new cohort was just sort of inaugurated, um, I guess, a few weeks back now, is the Higginbotham Fellowship. Um, Can you introduce the the fellowship a little bit for listeners at home and talk about uh, where it's come from and how it tries to impact diversity in the field?
1: Uh, You know, absolutely. One of the things over the years, and diversity is very important to the AAA ICDR, and we've looked at the concept that uh, not only do we have to live and speak diversity, but, what are the, some of the positive steps we can do to bring in the underrepresentative people to understand arbitration, act as arbitrators and mediators, essentially develop more of a pipeline? And that was really the idea between Judge uh, putting together Judge Leon Higginbotham's fellowship program uh, done in 2009. And the idea really was to provide training, networking, mentorship for up-and-coming uh, diverse ADR practitioners these uh, program participants are actually required they go through a self-study component but they also have an intensive interactive training with uh, us here at our headquarters in new york as you mentioned our program was uh, i believe last month and we really go from soup to nuts seminars on dispute resolution we do mock arbitrations mock mediations Um, Our our recent class, I believe, had 20 professionals from across the country. And since the program was actually commenced, we've had 149 Higginbotham Fellows that have actually completed the program, uh, with many of them that are on our roster. They serve on cases. And a number of them have also been selected to our council at our board level. So uh, it's an excellent program. And we also complement this program, we have another one at the end of the year because the ADR uh, Student Diverse Summit, which is another three-day intense program that we'll be doing in New York in the fall. So it's really an idea of trying to get the training and exposure uh, for these people who just uh, haven't had the experience but are otherwise qualified. And um, I think it, it really does a good job.
0: You know, I, I've only heard good things about it. So it was definitely something it was great uh, when we heard you're going to have you know, have you on the show it was definitely something we wanted to talk about. And uh, for those that are out there, I think you might qualify, look, um, look it up on the website um, and you can apply for for the next cohort. It's it's a great organization, great uh, initiative. Um, one more initiative that I'd like to talk about before we kind of shift even, um, you know, away a little further is uh, something I mentioned at the top of the conversation, um, you and i now share uh the, the same role the same office um, i'm the outgoing i'm keeping the seat warm for you until you get here in the fall um and that's at the aba international let me see if i get the entire name the american bar association's international law section international arbitration committee don't say that's three times fast um <laughs> you're getting you're <laughs> you're taking that 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 role here in the fall as one of the co-chairs of the committee what got you involved in them um, and what are you hoping to achieve uh, during your tenure
1: well, first of all, it's going to be quite difficult to replace uh, your and following your footsteps. You and Barry Appleton and Sujay Herrera did a fantastic job. And I was always found the meetings very interested how you try to bring as many people in and try to pick themes that I think are very important for international arbitration. So uh, that's what I found interesting. And. Uh, You know, I'm hoping with uh, our new slate of co-chairs, Bart Wozniak, myself and and Sujay Herrera, that uh, we can continue in in that vein is to try to come up with programs to encourage membership, uh, programs that international arbitration are going to be helpful for the educational value uh, and try to meet the goals and objectives of this ABA section. I also would like to really try to encourage uh, the next generation of international arbitration practitioners to join uh, so they can join us. I'd like to get their perspectives uh, from people that are entering the field, how they view it. Because for me, you know, you learn from what the next generation is looking at, and you have to consider that uh, going forward. If we want to be more Inclusive and uh, get those visions. It's important to get the younger people in, and just to increase membership in general. But I think it's a great committee, uh, and um, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Well, look, we look forward to having you on board. And unless you think I go up in a wisp of smoke, you know, we'll be around, uh, you know, throughout throughout your first year. And I'm glad to make sure that the transition is a good and smooth one. I'm sure you'll do uh, great. We're looking forward to it. Appreciate it. Um, one last question before we we jump into uh, sort of uh, our, our conclusory remarks um and that is uh something i've been asking literally every guest of the show this season and that is um this the year 2022 ended and 2023 has begun with the rise of the machines ai is coming to replace lawyers and we all need to might as well go hang out uh you know go to the unemployment line because robots are coming for our jobs uh, I'm, I'm curious, from your perspective, Lewis, um, what do you think the impact of AI um, and, you know, technology is going to be, I guess, here in the near term? Do you think that uh, it's quite that dire, or do you think maybe that's a little bit uh, far out?
1: Well, in the near term, I think we're okay. It uh, Long term, boy, all bets are off. I, I have had my share of experimenting with several of the AI platforms and It is very impressive. Uh, The way you can ask it, for example, the other day I wanted to ask AI, what are the issues you see in life sciences international arbitration? And the moment I hit send, uh, instantaneously, I had six paragraphs of a well-thought-out response of really the issues that we need to consider in international life sciences arbitration. It is usually right on point. Uh, it does make mistakes. I have caught caught it making mistakes. So of course you have to be careful of that. And we know of uh, recent articles where lawyers are using it for their brief, and it uh, may make a case up uh, down the road. So you have to be careful. But it's only going to get better. And I just don't know. Can it replace? You know, I also look at it from my role as an administrator. Can I be replaced by a machine? Well, I'm I'm sure I can. I mean, uh, you know, multitasking, prioritizing. uh, I think the human factor is that you you also have to do things that may be harder for AI, like understand the stress level of the client, read between the lines. What is the client asking that um, I'm not getting or let me dive down deeper on the emotional level? Uh, I do think, and Chris, I'd love to hear your opinion on this, but this is a people business. People use my services. You know, we talked about doing meetings virtually. For me, you don't build a rapport virtually. You, You need to be in country, maybe have a meal, maybe establish some trust, some camaraderie that I don't know if AI can do that. So what is, how does that bode for business development and, and trusting your key disputes to an institution if it's solely based on AI? So to answer your question as a tool, I think it is definitely going to impact the legal field tremendously. I think like other tools and technology, it is going to be an indispensable tool. And I think we're going to, as for an institutional perspective, start now and start considering how we can use it to address the time and cost issue. But I think that uh, at least for the foreseeable future, the human other intangibles cannot be easily replaced. This is a people business.
0: I think that's right. Um, I think that last statement is is true. And um, that is why I don't think lawyers or any sorts of services uh, business can be completely automated or, or replaced. But I think that the really good um, and successful practitioners will learn how to use AI to sort of enhance what they already do. Um, I think when it comes from a dispute resolution perspective, I do think there will be a cost benefit of analysis at some point to say if the machines are able to be as effective at at a fraction of the cost as even a human arbitrator. I do think, even if it's not the lawyers making that push, maybe the the powers that are above us saying that, is it worth um, advancing or investing a year, year and a half, two years or more in a dispute when you can have a machine that's gonna get you 80% accurate in a week, whatever, however long it takes for to process all that information. I don't know how far we are from that. I, I can see it on the horizon. But it's sort of like a mirage. I can't tell how close I, we are to it.
1: Yeah. What's frightening is that its rate of evolution is so accelerated compared to our learning capabilities that who knows how far away we are.
0: Exactly that. Um, it, 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 it's frightening, you know, to your point of the life sciences thing. You know, even if I knew exactly what I wanted to write, my ability to type that out would take, you know, hours, time. Versus the the machine is able to do it in seconds. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, look. Let's zoom out a little bit. Let's uh let's as uh, we head towards the end of the the, the interview. Uh, one question I wonder, Lewis, is um over the course of your career, uh, maybe both at the the AAA and before that, who have been some of the maybe role models, guiding forces um, that have had an impact in your career? If any come to mind.
1: Well, I've learned a lot from many of the arbitrators that we've had on our cases and uh, some of the practitioners from the large law firms. I find these cases very interesting, and that's why I think our model, uh, at least for me and, and uh, the AAA, where the vice presidents play an administrative role at least the 40 to 50 percent of their time, I have some very large, very high profile cases with uh, highly sophisticated counsel and arbitrators that um, I just enjoy attending these hearings, reading their submissions. Uh, these disputes uh, sometimes are in the billions of dollars, and you feel the stress with the bet the company case. And then you see these arbitrators who Um, have the skill set not only for the underlying uh, dispute and the subject matter expertise, but they also have case management expertise. Uh, I had a case last year where uh, I guess I would describe it in that it was during the pandemic, and I think to a certain extent when these hearings were all done virtually, uh, I did see somewhat of an erosion of civility, Uh, And perhaps if they were in the same room with the tribunal, they wouldn't have been as, uh, shall we say, there was a bit of a lack of diplomacy and confrontation. Yet this arbitrator rose above it, knew how to handle it, stayed on track, and uh, just continued to manage the case so effectively. These types of lessons and, of course, learning how these disputes are resolved and the issues in play and uh, the complex caseload we have, to me, are extremely interesting.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would agree. Um, again, well, well stated and well, well said. Um, another sort of a personal interest question. Uh, what's in your
1: bookshelf? What are you reading right now? Well, when I have time, I, uh, I'm fascinated by military history quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just, I had read it before, but the patent papers... Uh, looking at uh, General George Patton, and uh, wondering how these military leaders, uh, given the responsibility and life and death decision, approach decision-making, and some of their, of course, character failures as well as human beings, but the ability to, to lead people like that into such stressful and intense life or death situations to me. Is amazing. But history was my undergraduate degree. So I always uh, have been fascinated by history, specifically military history.
0: Okay. So you mentioned the patent papers. Any um, other favorites, any others that come to mind?
1: I have uh, and haven't finished it yet. But uh, someone, as a gift, just gave me a Grant's memoirs, and it's actually a first edition. And he is another general that I've been very curious about, and I'm going through that. Quite an uh, unbelievable person under tremendous strain and pressure. That is so, shall we say, cool under under battle.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, that's General uh, Ulysses Simpson Grant, right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, yeah, okay, great. Well, look, we I know we have international listeners out there too, so uh, to, to get the reference to. Um,
1: oh, thank you. You're right. <laughs>
0: um, but uh, okay, very cool, very cool, and. Um, Let's stay in that similar vein. Uh, Music. What
1: kind of music are you? Do you have any favorite artists? You know, that's a funny question, because uh, my kids say I stopped listening to music in the 80s. So, yeah, I'm an 80s fan. I like uh, the Eagles. I know even the 70s and Fleetwood Mac and Journey and things like that. I've heard they've made music since then, but uh, I've got (laughs) to update what I'm listening to.
0: No, well, look, I mean, 80s are, that's a good time. I mean, if you had to like stop in the 80s, I mean, that's not terrible. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Okay. Um, and look, hey, well, since we're talking about uh, the auditory sphere, um, maybe you know about this. There, um, I used to listen to, or I still listen to them, a few uh, podcasts um, on business, legal podcast as well. And I remember that there was this, uh, I think it was a AAA commercial that used to come on on some of the podcasts um, that talks about, you know, for over 100 years, uh, AAA has. You know, Does that ring a bell? Do, are, you, are you the one that makes those commercials happen, or how does that work?
1: I don't recall. We have a series of continuing ads on Bloomberg. I don't know if it's okay to say Bloomberg, but, um, but yeah, we have this continuing series that talks about the AAA and the ICDR. And, I think these ads are, are quite well done. Uh, I don't know about the, the one that speaks about a hundred year history, but I wouldn't be surprised. I, I said a
0: hundred years, I mean, it says something about the measure of time, um, but it's like a, right, it's, it's right. very distinctive, very distinctive.
1: Very cool, yeah, very I, think, good. I think those, those are ads uh, really serve us well.
0: Let me ask you this question. This is another one of my favorite ones to, to ask as we sort of get ready to wrap up here. Um, if you were approached by a current student, a recent grad, or someone looking to break into the field, What advice would you give them to help them uh, prepare to make that move?
1: Uh, That's such a great question, and it's one I do receive uh, on a regular basis. I'm fortunate to head up our young and international group with uh, my colleague, uh, Rafael Carmona. And we're very proud in that we have 5,000 members in over 90 countries. We have over 52 recorded programs that, by the way, are free. You can just join, there's no cost to join, uh, uh, yni.org, but you access it uh, from our education and resources page. And I tell them, you know, there's a number of things they can do, certainly joining, and we're not the only institution that has a young and international group. I think their learning programs are fantastic, but we also do a lot of programs that try to analyze the different career paths. And there are many different careers that you can do in international arbitration. It's not just being a lead counsel or you have in-house counsel, you have tribunal secretaries, you have administrators, you have academic. Uh, There's quite a bit you can do. And I think you have to find your niche and consider all the possibilities. Now, having said that, I, I, I do have some concern that uh, there's many LLM programs and I think there's many good ones. And I do think that degree, having an LLM in international arbitration is helpful uh, if you're going to go into this field and uh, provides you really a solid foundation. There's many other training programs as well too, depending on what you want to do, be an arbitrator or a mediator. Uh, But I think expectations have to be clear as well because There are many more students vying for these positions. So I guess if I was uh, giving out the advice, networking is important, who you know, um, developing a good mentorship, specializing, writing, I think is important. Perhaps carving out a niche in a particular sector that complements your expertise or undergraduate degree, uh, I think is important. And writing skills are very important as well, so try to enhance that. Uh, But it is very competitive, and that started out my point about all the competition we're seeing. Um, I'll say this, Chris. I remember when I was starting out and visiting the Latin American capitals, very few law firms had international arbitration practices. And, yes, there are many more today and there are many more visits that I do, but there are literally, as you know from the vSmoot, thousands of students. And we have to be careful that they may not have the opportunities and jobs for all of them. So networking, education, uh, specializing, considering not the traditional role, uh, but I think international arbitration is still going to continue to grow. So it is certainly a career path I would recommend.
0: I would agree. And uh, listeners of the show will have heard me say it before, but I think it's important enough that I'll continue to say it and say it again, is by the way, just because your first job isn't in international arbitration doesn't mean that it won't be in five years, seven years, 10 years. I mean, it's not something that you need to do right out of law school. In fact, it rarely happens though. Last two questions that I have for you um, here, Lewis, let's say that it's 5 PM on a Friday and you are somehow completely free for the weekend. You can do whatever you'd like. That magic wand is back. You can do whatever you want, be wherever you'd like. How do you spend that weekend?
1: Um, That's a great question. And uh, I'm fortunate in that I live uh, down by the Jersey Shore, so not too far from the beach. We have a little dog, and we just love going for a walk, my wife and I, on a Friday evening, uh, especially if the weather's pleasant. Uh, Even in the winter, though, you'd be surprised how pleasant the Jersey Shore is, even in the autumn and the fall and the winter. So that's probably our go-to Friday evening, maybe grab a bite to eat and just relax and unwind. Uh, We tend also not to really make detailed plans. We do like the idea of just seeing what the weekend brings or uh, what family we're seeing. But Fridays is our typical beach walk afternoon.
0: That sounds like a fantastic weekend. I mean, you know, as I sit here, you know, we're at the cusp of summer. We might even be in summer already. Walks by the beach, relaxing. Um, I think those are all great ways that we... um, Well, Louis, look, final question for you. Um, Any shout outs that you wanna give to the folks listening at all?
1: Well, I really wanna recognize my ABA future colleagues as we uh, join uh, and co-chair the International Arbitration Committee. Bart Wozniak, Sujay Herrera, and myself. And I want to also recognize my ICDR team, our administrators, my colleagues, uh, my director in Miami, Anna Lombardia. Uh, It's really a good team that we have working together, and, and they make my job so much easier.
0: Fantastic. Well said. And um, the name drop that I'll add to the, the great list that you've already given is one of the Higginbotham fellows that I know and hails from my native South Carolina, Mozart Ross. Mozar, if you're listening, I'm going to tag you in the show notes. And uh, you've been name dropped, sir. So you're on notice. Um, Lewis, it has been, uh, as it always happens um, at this part of the episode, the time has just jumped by, it skipped by. Thank you so much for uh, coming by the show.
1: Chris, it was absolutely my pleasure. And... I am Luis Martinez, and there is no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you, and we will see y'all
0: next time. So, folks, there you have it. As I said from the outset, Luis is just one of those interesting individuals that has a wealth of knowledge of information, both on international arbitration, but especially because of his perspective working with the ICDR. I don't know if you could tell, but there were so many more questions I wanted to get to, but as but just so often happens on the show, we ran out of time. We'll have to get Lewis back again here sometime. One final note on Lewis. He also happens to be succeeding me as the incoming co-chair of the International Arbitration Committee at the American Bar Association's International Law Section. In any case, that's it for this week. As mentioned, we've got just a couple of episodes more before we take a little break in August. But rest assured, but rest assured, we think you're really going to enjoy these next two weeks. So stay tuned. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by MoBeta Solutions. Show music is by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. That's it for this week. Until next time, there's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality.